Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Ibopedia. I am your host, Chisun, and my special guest today is Nigerian author and publisher, Diribe Onyama. He was born in Enugu, Nigeria in 1951, the son of influential judge Charles Daddy Onyama, and on the day of his birth became the first black boy to be registered to attend Eton College. Dilibe became a pupil at Eton when he was 13 years old and completed his studies there four years later. He subsequently wrote a book whilst still a teenager about his experiences of racial discrimination and bullying at the elite British boarding school. The book is called Nigger at Eton. Dilibe obtained a diploma from the Premier School of Journalism before returning to Nigeria and establishing the publishing company Delta Publications where he is currently the CEO. Today, he joins us from Enugu, Nigeria, where he is based. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Happy Sunday to you. Yeah, happy Sunday to you too. It's great to have you on, and I'm sure we'll have a very, very interesting discussion. Yes, congratulations on your brilliant scheme of Ebopedia. Well done. Thank indeed. you very much. <laughs> Thank you. So let's kick off by talking a little bit about you. You were born in Enugu, as I mentioned before. Can you talk to us about your early life in Nigeria and some of your early memories? My early life in Nigeria, from the age of about four or five, I recall, right through to Lagos, when I attended the age of eight, and then left for England. And from mists of memory, I was a rough, tough kid in Nigeria. Rough, tough kid. I was, I loved adventure and I loved aping adults. The highlights of those memories were when I entered my father's car and drove it into the gutter and the whole <laughs> neighborhood, the, the whole neighborhood converged on our house and from the, from the shouting driver, driver, driver and um, the whole crowd, the cars in the gutter, I rushed inside. And everybody came around to see. My mother, I was trying to inside. My mother said, no, 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 you stay there. Let them all look at you. That was one <laughs> first memory. The other memory was when I was school and my father was summoned by the head mistress and was told, your son is too rough for us. And now I, I became like a, a sort of a ping pong between the two of them. The head mistress pushed me to my father. father pushed me back. It went on and on until <laughs> eventually. They agreed to take me back. So my memories were of uh, a sort of a larger than life bounce on African Billy Bunter, so to speak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's a lovely way of putting it and some very interesting stories there. You mentioned yes. that you moved to England. You started boarding school there when you were eight. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, yes. That must have been one of your, I guess, your first time outside of Nigeria for a prolonged period of time. What did you miss most about leaving Nigeria? Um, and what did you miss most about Nigeria and leaving home? Well, what I missed most, obviously, was family. My father, my mother, my brothers, they're, they're all behind in Nigeria. So I missed them in nostalgia for a long time. But anyway, I suppose I, I missed the sort of the, the third world rough and tumble, the sort of, the, I can't quite describe it. I just missed Nigeria. But after a time, I acclimatized, got used to it, and um, Britain became my future adventure. I settled in quite fast. As I said, I was very adventurous. Anything new to me was 
like a sort of adventure, it's like a magnetism. So, mm. uh, but in any event, I was going home every year for holidays. So, but initially, I was able to join him, but as the only black African face in the, in the prep school. And they're all very, very charming. All went the extra mile to so accommodate me and make me feel very important and um, at home. And it was a blissful experience in those days of early prep school. I enjoyed it. And within a few weeks, Nigeria went crashing. I, I sort of uh, tuned into a, a new way of life. You know, so, you know. hmm. I survived it. It was a very enjoyable experience, prep school, yeah. Excellent. And you mentioned your father a few times. Your father is Charles Daddy Onyama, and he was the Justice of the Supreme Court of Nigeria and a judge at the International Court of Justice. So clearly a very influential and powerful figure of his time. What was it like growing up with such an important father figure? My father was very exposed. He went to England and grew up in England for six years to do law. And he came to appreciate the English way of life. And he used the opportunities he had to make his way. He was a shrewd investor. He had the financial backing of my late grandfather. He had the money available. And he invested very well. And he made connections in, uh, in high society English life. And one got the impression until the day he died that he, I wouldn't say he worshipped the English, the British, but at any rate, it was as if he didn't seem to believe the Englishman could do any wrong. And um, he made very, very powerful friends. And through his friends, he said, look, which school should I send my son to? The best school in England. They said, well, if you want the very best, why not even college? He said he didn't believe them. He thought they were just joking. He loved the English <laughs> public school system. Right. loved the English public school system. And... He wasn't conceptualizing of the, of the idea of putting his, you know, his children in a school built by English royalty. He didn't think in terms of rubbing shoulders with English royalty. He was thinking something more modest, like rugby, charterhouse, this, you know. And he laughed at them. They said, well, yes, why not? Put them to in college. And he didn't believe them. And they said, well, leave it to us. And they went and made a connection. And they said, yes, yes, put his name down. That's how it all happened. So you were registered at Eton from birth, the first black boy to register at Eton from birth. We'll have a deeper discussion about your time at Eton because I'm sure there's a lot to unpick there. But whilst we're on the family, the subjects of family, I didn't mention it in our introduction, but you and I are actually related. We are first cousins, twice removed. And so that means that my great-great-grandfather is your grandfather. And he is, or he was a man called Chief Unyama, a British-backed ruler of Enugu, and the eastern region in Nigeria in the 1900s. And now he was another influential figure in your life, but he was an immensely influential, wealthy and powerful figure at the time, an extraordinary leader of his time. You wrote a book and you published a book about him called Chief Onyama, The Story of an African God. Tell us a bit more about this man. Well, he came to power through the vigorous of the hour, he was born towards the end of the slave trade. He made his livelihood because slavery in Africa, there's no culture of slavery in Africa, in Nigeria. Slavery was essentially a penal system. People who fell foul of the customs or who were misfits, couldn't fit in, were criminals or in between, who were captives of inter-community wars, were taken as slaves. So it was like a penal system. Now, when the slavery ended, 
the British brought in this system, American brought in the system of slavery and barter. They brought all their sort of um, emblems of Western technology and in, in return for slaves. So he made his money as, as, a, as a businessman, as a sort of essentially as a, a trader. That's how he made it. And he also was exposed to many English visitors, soldiers, missionaries. And he went out, because he was a very adventurous man, and he went out, made his connections. And he won their trust. He got his wife to cook for them. And so he won their trust. And so they put him in a position of power above all the other people who were most resentful. They said, look at this kid born just yesterday. He's now put in a position of power over us. So that's how he came and got his warrant to be a chief. And then he was very fast as a sharp businessman, and he capitalized and made money. And according to the missionaries and what one heard, his wealth was legendary. And it was said that he was the richest chief in black Africa. Because in those days, he amassed plus six limousines and all. You know, he was very, very rich, very powerful. And that was what made it possible for my father to use his potentials when was money was available for him to go ahead and do his best. He was made to, and he did that. He, was very, he brought the education, he brought Christianity into pretty well the whole eastern area, east Enugu, right out to Ogoja, and all the Abaja Empire. He brought in Christianity education. And that was how he was able to flourish. Uh, he made the Western people at home, the missionaries, Bishop Shanahan, the Catholic Church. He made them all at home. And he became very popular and very influential with the government. And they used him to establish law and order. And it was effective. Yes. And um, he played a pivotal role, as you say, in the development of the region and particularly in education. And I know that there's a school in Eke, which I've been to a few times, and he built that school, Chief Onyama built that school and developed it and made sure that there was free education for the people of that particular village. Um, he clearly did a lot of good things for the society at the time. There are also some very interesting stories about him because he was a very unique character, very flamboyant. One story that I know quite well because my great-grandmother was his first daughter and when it was time for her to get married, one of the other chiefs from a different part of this eastern region, he was Ozoi Ejike, went to ask for her hand in marriage. And his family, so Chief Ozoi Ejike's family, they were slightly worried. They said, are you sure you want this kind of man as a father-in-law? Because he was known to do all sorts of extraordinary things. Are there any anecdotes that you can tell us a bit about um, him? Because there are many stories that are like the stuff of legends. Yes, well... Oza Ejike was his son-in-law, and he was also a power in that area of Abaja called Owa. Owa. His father-in-law, Ozobu of Imejowa, wanted some power, but Onyama wouldn't hear of it at all. He said, no, 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 it's just a picture of my own. So there was some sort of power struggle. But Oza Ejike was the power in Agobowa in those days. He used him to check all the other chiefs who wanted some some power for themselves. And Ozejike, with the backing of Chief Onyama behind him, he was able to entrench the authority and the power in that whole area. And so what he used to do, what he used to do to help make life easier for himself, he'd go and marry the daughters of influential chiefs as a way of checking their status, keeping them in place. Because he married their daughter, and so that was like, Subtle blackmail, you know, 
behave yourself. You, I have your daughter. So that was effective. Right. That was how he got many and, you know, but one or two cases people rebelled. And of course he was ruthless and he didn't, he wouldn't stomach any, any opposition. There are many stories. There's many stories. There's one story about one particular chief who he went to ask daughter friend for marriage. The daughter said to him, well, no, I'm, I understand that you don't treat your wives well. And he said this in front of the chief before his parents. And so Chief Onyama laughed and went back. And someone they meeting with all the chiefs. And the father of that particular girl, he ostracized. He, he said, pack out of, I don't see the anybody anymore. That was like punishment. Wow. And he, he like ostracized him entirely. So he, that was a story those days. Yes, yeah, I, I've heard a few stories of how he was ruthless, but I guess at the time he had to be because he he was a very ambitious man who emerged from relative obscurity, but he managed to, well, he had the foresight of knowing that an alliance or some kind of relationship with the British is what would help him maintain his power, and a certain element of ruthlessness was critical in him maintaining that power and the influence and the wealth that he amassed. So would you describe Elizabeth for us how he came to pass and what eventually would become his downfall? Well, he had he became very powerful, too powerful. And when a person is very powerful, then enemies get together to fight him. And in all the different detractors and um, all the elements of opposition ganged up, bringing up all sorts of um, fabricated, all sorts of charges which were all rejected by the British authorities. Well, this matter got out of hand was he cracked down heavily on his enemy. He didn't spare them. Many of them were sent to prison. And others, he sent his um, militia to deal with them. He instilled fear. For instance, the part of um, southern Igbos who tried to take power in Enugu land, he wouldn't hear of it. And he sent them packing. The Obi of Onicha, Chief Florence, all of them. He all their educated elements. He wouldn't allow them to have a breathing space in Enugu at all. So they all ganged up different, you know, but he was powerful and he fought them to a standstill. He lost a case with his father-in-law who claimed that he had lent him some money and he hadn't returned it. So Chief Onyama insisted he had returned the money a long time ago, but he didn't get the receipt to show he returned it. So when he was going on appeal, that's when his enemies got together and they planned the news itinerary and they stopped the train. Police, they were there in mass. And they said to him, we have an, an, a warrant for your arrest and eventual deportation on exile, like King Jaja. And so when he was told that, he couldn't hear, he couldn't, and everywhere he went, he always had his gun with him. So he didn't want to be disgraced. So when he was told he said that they had a warrant for your arrest, he sent, pushed his wife out, locked the door, and took his own life, rather than be disgraced and seen in, in, in handcuffs. So that was what basically happened. The enemies became very powerful. It was a long, hard struggle. Mm. He went, but um, he was unique in Igbo land because they say Igbo Eweheze, and Igbo authority is constantly being bedeviled by opposition. Everybody is a king unto himself, but he wouldn't hear of it. Right. I mean, and, and it was reported that he had had, had the seal of life or death. And one mission report that he's the only Igbo ruler whose word was law. And it was extremely dangerous to disregard his word. And up to this day, people are still, they just don't want to hear the name of Yama at all. And that is, you know, he was ex- unique in Igbo land because he wielded a power which nobody opposed at all. That was more or less what happened. And 
his descendants are now suffering as a consequence. <laughs> yes. I think just picking up on the points that you made of Ibuewaze, which means Ibo people do not have a king. And I think that's something, and that's the saying that we have in Ibo land. And basically what it shows is that in traditional Ibo land, they had democracy, true democracy, long before the British came to Nigeria. Because um, often there is this, uh, I guess, misconception in the Western world that they brought democracy to Africa. But actually the Igbo people had this concept of the umunna, where you had the elders of the village and they would discuss the uh, the goings on and they would jointly make a decision. Whereas when the British came, they preferred to have, a, I guess, a contact point. And in this case, um, in the eastern region of Nigeria, it was Chief Unyama. So they kind of change this dynamic of not having, of democracy, essentially, by focusing on one central figure. Yes, that was the situation because the British started off with this warrant chief, many, many chiefs, local councillors. Then they introduced what they called the parliament chief as an experiment of administrative king-making to bring the uh, the Igbos in line with what obtained in the West and in the north, the Oba and the Emir, they wanted to have paramount chiefs in Igbo land. And they experiment, they have what they call so native administrators or something. And they have selected 10 or 11 different big men to see if they could establish the same authority as they should in their native land, other areas beyond their territories. Mm. And of all the um, 11 or so people they, they, they selected for the experiment, two made the grade. There were two paramount chiefs which were now um, gazetted and crowned. One was Chief Onyama, the other was um, Chukwane, Chukwane of Ozala. He now, Chukwane had some uprising in his, in, in his community and he was almost killed. And so the British decided that he no longer exercised paramount authority. So they cancelled his status. So the Onyama became the only surviving, sole survivor of this, this king-making process. And so the British said, well, since only one person survived out of 11, then the whole system is a failure. So he now, he fought that. He said, look, I'm a paramount chief, but I heritage right. I'm an Okroha from O'Shea. So the, uh, the government said, let us in- investigate that, that claim and sent a mission of inquiry around the whole of Abaja. Abaja. And they all unanimously said, yes, this man is our king. He was the Okroha of Abaja, the biggest Igbo sub-clan. And that was the first the pioneer in royalty in Igbo land, where they used to have no kings. Interesting. It was very, yeah, very interesting story of his life and an interesting character as well. Let's move on with, a, let's play a, a small game. It's called Dream Dinner Party Guests. And if you had a dinner party at home and you could invite three guests, they can be living or deceased, who would they be? Well, obviously, my father would be one. Can he be included? Yes, yes, of course. Yes. I have a brother who's directly junior to me, Louis. He, he is living in Switzerland. He'd be another one. And um, I have a cousin, a first cousin, um, whose mother was daughter of Chief Onyama, one of the best lawyers we've had in Enugu here, Barrister Herbert Ebue. He'd be the third one. These are people who have all been to England. We all... English finesse and we enjoy good parties, good drinks, good company and good conversation. Those are the ones I remember offhand instantly. Yeah, excellent. That sounds very good. 
It also sounds like the the English culture played a big part in your upbringing and in your life. Let's talk about your life at Eton College. So Eton College is one of the oldest, most prestigious and most exclusive boarding schools in the world. The school counts the likes of George Orwell, John Keynes, Boris Johnson, David Cameron and countless members of the British royal family amongst its alumni. You were one of two black boys at the time at Eton in the 60s. Admittedly, as we've discussed, you were from an influential family, so you were no strange to wealth and prestige and power. How did it feel, though, as a young 13-year-old to be plunged into this predominantly white environment? Well, I was used to it to a certain extent, because I spent five years at an English prep school. And prep school, the preparatory school is what prepares pupils for public school education. It's, it's exclusive primary schooling system. So I, I, I was brought up gradually and prepared for public school life. So when I got into college, the only, well, psychological challenge was that I was a black African going to school there. One other black African was there. So, um, and I had, I, I heard grisly stories about anti-black sentiments, everything else. So I was a bit guarded and Tense, you know, a preset condition of of um, ragging and bullying. That was my my fear. But anyway, that mm. was I'd be prepared for it anyway. So there was another black boy at Eton at the time, Akintola. Can you describe your relationship with him and how that was formed? Initially, my relationship with Akintola was swimming. There was no problem with casual. There was about two terms ahead of me, ahead of me. I, mean, I didn't have that much interaction with different classes, everything else. We had some good conversations together, as I say, on a casual basis. Then the coup, 1966 coup in Nigeria, when the leading politicians were assassinated, and his father was one of the victims of that coup. And unfortunately, the coup plotters and those who assassinated the politicians were Igbo officers. So he wasn't amicably disposed towards Igbo for obvious reasons. When he came back, then conversation was slightly less than a whisper. So the feeling is there, and out of matter of tact, I kept away. I didn't want a situation where anything could degenerate to all out enmity. So it was like um, kept a distance. That was in, as a consequence of that coup d'etat, which killed his father by Igbo military officers. But before that, we had no problems as such. We had no problems. He didn't stay in the school very long anyway. He left and went to school in Switzerland. I wouldn't have said there was, by and large, the relationship was bad. It was, it was civilized. We didn't, we didn't start quarreling as such or anything. But, you know, it was cool. He lived his own life, I lived my life, but he didn't have that, that much interaction. Right. And you mentioned in the book and earlier that there was some bullying, name-calling, so predominantly psychological uh, bullying versus physical bullying. What do you think could have been done differently to make your time at Eton better? Differently by the school, for example, but also... To what extent were your parents aware of what was going on at Eton? 
when you say what was going on, nothing really was. I mean, my book, which you made reference to, the magnetism of that book was as a human interest story because it was based on the eccentric choice of a black African pupil in an establishment built by English royalty and not designed with an African background in mind. So based on that, an African pupil was something of an eccentric choice for Eton College, built by English royalty, mm -hmm. the people who colonized Africa. And so inevitably, there did exist supremacist attitudes, and there's no way you could avoid encountering such attitudes, sometimes deployed mm -hmm. with hostility, sometimes with um, patronizing, sometimes with, with love. But at any rate, in as much as they had opened their doors to affect a wind of change by bringing black pupils into school, there's no gain saying that the white man could never accept the black African as his equal. And it right. was manifested in some things they said, did, and thought. There's nothing one could do about it. It isn't going to change. And they felt they're doing me a favor. People used to say, do you know how lucky you are going to Eton College? Well, so really, it wasn't something which, I think it was an eccentric choice. To me, I could, I could call it an adventure. Others would say it was a misadventure. But as the case may be, it was a situation that it was. It was a matter of how do you cope with all the different things you encountered, which all had undertones of racism. Mm. Yes, and three years after you obtained your school leaving certificate from Eton College, so this was in 1969, you actually received an official letter informing you that you were banned from visiting the school. What was your initial reaction to this? This happened, the ban, it was imposed in 1971. My book was serialized in England in a magazine, a two-part serialization. And once the serialization ran its course, I got a letter from the headmaster saying you are banned because what you wrote was a damning indictment against school. And it's a lie. It's not true. It never happened. Right. And it, it bore no relation whatsoever to the facts. So you are banned until further notice. So please don't come back. My reaction was amusement because <laughs> it, made, it made headlines. The thing, I mean, it became world news. And um, Nigerian newspapers picked up the serialization, republished it. And I wrote a letter back to the headmaster saying, I doubt whether you as a white headmaster will be aware of the facts on which my views are based. I just replied mm -hmm. that I wrote a letter, a complaint to the British Race Relations Board. And I said, look, I can count at least four examples, cases where people have written damning write-ups against Eton College. They weren't banned. So why should my own case be different? Right. That caused more sensation worldwide. Head of Eton reported to the Race Board. And then at the end of the day, the thing fizzled out. Then about a year later, the book came out, 1972 and the wealth of press, global press coverage. And they now replace the saying the ban is still on. <laughs> they haven't changed with the ban. <laughs> so I said, fine. So that, that was that. So I took it for granted. Okay, I'm banned. Good luck. You don't want me. I don't want you either. So the feeling is perfectly mutual. So that was the situation. But as regards my father, 
he was aware. I used to write letters complaining. Look, I'm being called nigger. I mean, my father said, oh, don't listen to these people. When he was in England, he was called all sorts of names. Nigger, blah, 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 blah. I should pay no heed. So he didn't really take it seriously. I think it was anticipated that one would encounter that in, at some stage. Just pausing there, um, this anecdote of your father, because he went to Oxford and was uh, uh, worked at the International Criminal Court. And you're saying that he's also experienced some of these things. So for him, it was almost normalised. And is it something he felt that you needed to come to terms with or just to deal with? My father wrote and said, oh, don't worry about it, pay no heed. Those were his words, pay no heed. When he was in England, as a student, he used to call all sorts of names, but it's, I shouldn't take it, mm. take it seriously. That was about his reaction. I mean, I didn't see it in yes. that way. I felt, look, you know, why should this people, you know, that's, uh, that was what happened here. But there was a very definite ex- existence of a supremacist attitude, which one was compared to rebel against, and I didn't so violently. <laughs> well, yes, it's understandable. And uh, actually, some of those supremacist, many of those supremacist attitudes still exist today in the world generally, not just at Eton. But recently, with the recent discussions of race, particularly in, in the US, the headmaster of Eton issued you an apology, which you graciously accepted. So talk me through how you felt. Was that some kind of closure for you? And will you be paying the school a visit at some point? Well, it all somehow fitted into the Black Lives Matter struggle, which was a global event. And somehow it came up because the book is still in print, although it's a revised edition of the first one. It's still in print and it's still making waves, selling so not many times. And so BBC, I think, got involved and took up that issue. Why used to banned? I said, well, I have no idea. Uh, although some years ago, I got one letter from an ex-provost saying, oh, you're free to come back. But I think it was more like tongue-in-cheek. It's like lip service. I didn't really take it seriously. But then this became a public apology, which and, um, I was a bit taken aback because I wasn't expecting it. So uh, I said to the headmaster, well, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, And he says he'd like to personally say sorry in person. And we have since that time been negotiating whether I should go to England, go to Eton College, and he tendered an official okay. apology. So we're working towards that. But with this um, pandemic, this upsurge in pandemic, mm-hmm. everything has been put on hold until the situation is better, until things get better health-wise. And I certainly want to go to England now. So I think, so right now, they, the, the plans are in progress. They'll pay my trip, everything else, to go there and address the school. And he'll make an official apology to me personally in front of the world press. So that, that is that is now has been arranged and agreed in principle, yes. Oh, that's excellent. Very good. So my, I'm anticipating in, in the next five, six months, I should come to London and go to Eton College. So that is what is up right now. So where did your passion for writing start? It started at school. I heard about a, a novel written by Amos Tutuola called The Palm Wine Drinker, and that was written in Pidgin English. So I attempted to write a novel in Pidgin English and started to write letters to magazines and 
those were published and I was paid English magazines. And so that was stimulate my, my desire to write. And my books got published. The novel I wrote, first as a drama, was later published as Juju. That was my first novel. My first book it was published in four different countries. But it was written, it had been written first, first and foremost as a drama in Pigeon English. And the, the publisher said, look, dramas are very difficult to sell in book form unless they have first had a, a successful West End production. So I rewrote the whole thing as a novel and it was accepted in four different countries. Wow, excellent. And for all those um, aspiring writers out there, what advice would you give them? What are your top tips? Well, my top tips is that they should read and read and read to get inspiration. Read all different, because you're writing in the English language, so it's good to read as many English novels as possible and to get inspiration ideas and keep reading and keep writing. You know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, Frederick Forsyth, for instance, he was rejected six times before his first novel, Joe Jackal, was published. Mm-hmm. And my own book, Nigat Eaton, was rejected six times as well before it was published. So my advice, my advice then is encouragement to keep writing. Keep writing. There's no other way. And based on a policy of continuous improvement. You know, and so many people are writing, so many people, and the competition is there, and the book, uh, a book is very kept intensive, so not many, not many writers are getting through. But mm. those which have real talent do get through. As in publishing Delta publication, we have 600 titles in, in my publishing experience. We publish many, many novels, which ordinarily wouldn't get published outside, but based on uh, some, some, some sort of uh, idea, the desire to promote and um, encourage African talent. I've, I've taken on bought books which other people may not touch. So my, my encouragement is look, keep writing, keep reading. Those two things must be done for a basis of, of improvement. Yes. Well, thank you for those tips. Before we wrap up, um, I'd like to post to you a scenario. Imagine that you are stuck on a desert island, but you can take a few things with you. Uh, you can take a couple of books. Which books would those be? One with the Bible. <laughs> the Bible will be one of them. The first one, I, the first okay. one I take is the Bible, because the Word of God is inside it. And, and with that, I'm sure I find my way in the, in the desert. Since the Jews, <laughs> the, 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 the Jews, the wandering Jews, find their way in the desert, I believe I will I'll find the secrets of how to survive in the Bible. That's the first book I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll read, and I find that's, that that will be enough. I don't need more than one book. Not to be the Bible. <laughs> that's what I'll take with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good choice. Lots of life lessons in the Bible, and it's a very lengthy book, so you will of be course. kept busy. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed, yes. In terms of music, what would be your top tracks on your music playlist? Well, um, I have this Beethoven, Bach, or Verdi, you know, all the classical gurus, African traditional music. Yeah. Local music, drums, drumming, you know, village music, and dance, and it's a classical music and also light entertainment, and also yes, church music, church music. So yeah. those are my those are my sort of passions, you know. 
Excellent. Very good choices there. So I'd like to end by um, asking you if anybody wants to get in touch or buy your books. You you are the CEO and founder of Delta Publications. How do they um, get in touch? Where should they go? Well, give them my um, email address. Give them my email address, which you have. And they yes. write to, 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 to us. And um, there is a publishing address, but since you know me, they can write to me and I direct it to the editorial staff to go through. Yes. Already, yes. even though there's a, a pandemic, I've just, I've just bought about six new titles, which we'll publish in, in, in early next year. So oh, we are looking great. for scripts all the time. I'm involved a lot. We have, we have gimmicks to, to sell authors. I'll have book conventions every year in three different states in Nigeria. So really, I'm on the lookout for any new authors to promote. I'm looking how to encourage authors to come in there. So it's, it's let them write to me on email. You have my email address, and I will we will look at the book and see how we can accommodate and push them. Excellent. Well, everyone heard it there. If anybody wants to get in touch or any aspiring authors you know where to go. I just want to end by saying a big, big thank you. I've really enjoyed this episode, really enjoyed this conversation with you and learning about your family, our family history, about your life at Eton, extraordinary experiences and about your career as an author. So thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. And congratulations to your initiative, Ibupedia. Thank you indeed. Have a blessed Sunday. Thank you. you okay, too. bye now. And a big thank you to all those of you listening today. Until next time, this is Ibuopedia. Join the conversation, join the community.